0: Hi everyone, I'm Cheryl Rose and you're listening to Maybe, a podcast about the messy reality of working for social innovation. These are stories about uncertainty and risk, about holding really, really big questions and not always having answers, having honest conversations and trying to think and act in very new ways. My own work has been all about supporting people who engage with that kind of complexity. People with a passion for big change. And change costs money. Have you ever thought what it would be like, how amazing it would be to have money to give away to make change happen? I have. But I've found out that funding social innovation is not necessarily easy or simple. Nope the funding process is actually often complicated and it can get messy. Funders are, after all, human beings. Powerful human beings. And funding organizations are their own version of bureaucracy. So, of course, they have issues. What issues? Well, here's one. Funder fragility. And when I say fragility, I mean blind spots to uncomfortable truths. Also, those defensive responses to being told that you just might be part of the problem. We hear a lot about fragility these days, white fragility, male fragility, others. Sometimes people with power and privilege, even if they're not really aware of their power and privilege, are uncomfortable with criticism. And this fragility can show up with funders, you know, the people who decide whether or not you get money to do your work out in the world. As it turns out, I was just at a workshop about developing grant proposals to give to funders. So, while we packed up at the end of the day, I talked to a couple of people about why fragility in funders can be a real problem.
1: Yeah, one of the things I find with funders and the need for them to be able to take sort of feedback and criticism from the people there they serve is the need to really listen and empathize and think beyond their own position, because their own position has these privileges baked into them. To be able to acknowledge that they don't know what it's like on the ground and that they maybe haven't in 10 or so years and that things have changed, that that ability to hear that change and hear it often from people who aren't very happy at the moment that they're expressing it. is a really important skill for the funders to learn to take what may be expressed in anger or frustration and so not super clearly, but to really hear the very different realities between the lives of the people that they're funding and their own work life. I think, it's, I think that foundations are super slow to change and I, I, to, to their credit, they are trying, but sometimes things don't hit the mark exactly or they might hit the mark for an urban population but it doesn't hurt, it's not addressing specifically rural populations when they do their when they mandate how to apply for grants I also think that there's a there's, there's huge problems with that you're not getting diversity in actual You're not actually getting representation of what's happening. You're getting very specific things over and over again. And in rural communities, there's such a a monopoly on who gets money that it's really difficult to shift that. And so most of the innovative ideas are coming from younger groups that are actually doing the work of interesting work, but they can't access the funding.
0: Funder fragility is super hard to deal with. More importantly, it can get in the way of change. We talked about how it's so risky to bring this up when you depend on grants. It's even risky to raise the topic when you're working inside the funding world. But I know an extraordinary funder who's committed to making that happen. Ashley Dryberg is the Focus Grants Associate at the Edmonton Community Foundation. She helped launch Shift Lab, which works for new and necessary dialogue about racism and poverty in Edmonton. And no surprise, Ashley was also recently named one of Edmonton's top 40 under 40. She has a common goal in much of what she does. Ashley wants to change conversations. The conversations happening out in communities, of course, but also conversations within the foundation where she works. As a community activist and a grant maker, I wondered what Ashley would have to say about funder fragility. Great to get a chance to talk with you, Ashley, because this term "funder fragility" seems to be coming up here and there. Um, just beginning to pop up in my attention, anyway. And i I thought of you when I heard it because I thought that you would have interesting things to say about it. The first thing that I wanted to know was how would you define funder fragility?
2: So I came across the concept of fragility more broadly through the work of Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility. So funder fragility is a term that I came across originally from Vu Li, and he talked about funder fragility as the way that funders get defensive um, when they are criticized. But I think I would take that one step further and say funder fragility is really the particular defensiveness that arises when funders are implicated are asked to picture themselves in how we are implicated in keeping alive the very systems and structures that we think that we are trying to dismantle. And of course, funders think, and we are, it's not just that we think this this is true, that we're doing good in the world. And so being confronted with that idea of, oh, I am both trying to do good in the world and I am sustaining and upholding these these really deep-rooted systemic problems, is one of those paradoxes that not everyone can hold. Um, And so a particular kind of defensiveness can erupt um, when confronted
0: with that. Yeah. And are there examples of funder fragility at the foundation that you work at? Like, you know, things that you could point to to say, well, this is what it can look like.
2: (laughs) I have so many examples, not just here at this foundation, but other places. I've experienced three different kinds of reactions to funder fragility. Uh, reaction number one is they just don't get it or they don't care. There's this kind of defensiveness that isn't violent, but is just, yeah, yeah, whatever. There's a kind of defensiveness that is that is more angry, um, that is more territorial, that is more wounded. Um, and then very rarely there is the reaction where someone gets it. <laughs> So, some of our own fragility or defensiveness that we've worked through is we've started to do a deeper dive with data and it's really starting to reveal some of our own biases oh we're we're pretty biased against and I don't want to get too specific, but you know about the against these types of projects or we're noticing that applications from these communities aren't coming through. And why is that? And what does that mean about us? And it's hard. <laughs> like I'm, I'm, I, I'm not trying to have a, a ribbon here <laughs> for going through this very, very necessary work.
0: Yeah. So you're talking about some of the consequences. Like this is why we can't just ignore it. This is why it is good to bring it up, even if it's uh, difficult to, to hear, to accept, and then, perhaps most difficult of all, to know what to do. And the reality of the power that you hold, right? Um, and the, the consequences are that we actually support that which is causing problems. And the consequences are on a personal level, I'm sure, is is something around integrity.
2: So there are, there are always consequences sometimes when you as a staff person are trying to speak up and say, hey, you know, I think we're doing this wrong or hey, this is happening or here are some hard questions that we need to ask. Um,
0: and as you speak up, you step into a space of some vulnerability. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> like why do you not just let it lie?
2: Well, I'd say I, I don't speak up as much as I would like to. Um, but because I you can't not I that's you, you can't not I, I I'm a person that has a lot of privilege in the world and I think the only moral and ethical response to that is to use that privilege to talk to people who share that privilege to try and make change
0: yeah so you talked about these three different responses one being um, a pushback And a, you know, kind of a not really understanding what you're talking about and, but really wanting things to just go along as they, as they are, then you all said there can be a reaction that is, you said it, it feels a bit violent, although that might not be the right word, but it sounds like a very emotional, kind of more personal, angry Mm
2: -hmm.
0: uh, reaction. So what do you do when you get that reaction internally?
2: Well, Of course, you go and have a little cry. (laughs) And you talk to the people that know and trust you. But it's an opening. It's a crack. And what I'm trying to learn is in those moments of ickiness and shame and anger and just that complicated emotional stew that comes from moments like this, it is a crack. It is a moment where a conversation has been opened. And so, how do you leverage that? I, I don't have an answer yet, but I think that's the positive piece that I'm clinging to—that now something has happened—and while the instinct, I think, is to just bandage it over and move on, um,
0: it's crack. Yeah. Any like inklings about where the place to start might be to make the most of that crack?
2: Well, in this particular example. Um, there are other, people are asking similar questions and there's similar conversations to the one that I'm trying to have. And so my first reaction here is, it's not just me. That make it not about you as an individual who is you know, being a firebrand or as being the troublemaker, but say, oh look, here's a person you respect talking about this, oh look, here's a thing that's happening over here, and oh look, here's something else that's happening here. So it's not, it's not me here's a larger conversation, and maybe it's time to pull in the diplomats, and maybe it's time to pull in the peacemakers, that it doesn't matter if it's my voice bringing these conversations forward, but where are the other people that can ask similar things, maybe in a way that can be heard um, without that um, personal tension.
0: Hmm. And then you said there can be a third reaction where people say, oh my gosh, you're right we have to do things differently. (laughs)
2: Yeah, no, it is through this equity conversation that's happened to me and to us a couple of times. Uh, Throughout the summer, we host a very casual event called Drinks on the Deck, where we will bring together folks uh, underneath a particular subject area for a casual conversation on our deck with drinks, with some beer, with some wine, with some snacks. And we say, we are coming to you with a question, let's just have a conversation. We just want to meet you and, and chat. And we held one that was focused around what should Edmonton's response be to the issues raised by Black Lives Matter? So maybe this was two summers ago. And so we brought together a really interesting group of folks who are working mostly with marginalized communities or with organizations that serve communities of color and indigenous people. And we heard something really interesting there. Because of CRA regulations, community foundations, for the most part, can only grant to registered charities. Many, many small organizations that serve um, people of color, serve indigenous people, are not charities. So they are ineligible for our funding, which is a larger problem. And the solution up until that point was, well, you can partner with a registered charity for a grant, but registered charities can only apply for one grant a year. And so we were told very forcefully in this conversation, very kindly, very forcefully, this is a systemic problem that you are creating. So from that, we changed our policy. Really small change, but now any partnership any charity that is working in partnership with an organization that serves a marginalized community, and not just a community of color or an indigenous community, but the queer community, um, communities that serve people with disabilities and so on, um, get an extra opportunity to apply so that they can both work in those partnerships and pursue um, their own projects and maybe beyond that. Something small, but it felt like such a victory in that moment.
0: Ashley's story is about her own and her organization's work to challenge their fragility from the inside. But it may also need to be challenged by people on the outside, by people applying for grants. What's her advice for them? For others who may not have something that's sort of structured and invited into that kind of space, would you have any advice for people that are looking to grantmakers and feeling that There's a lot of fragility here around, you know, I can't mention the problem, I can't hurt their feelings, I can't make them angry, um, I can't point out all the power that they hold over me, I just have to play nice, otherwise I'm not going to have the funding to do the really important good work that I'm doing. Would you have anything to say to people about how might they approach talking about this reality with potential
2: funding partners? I have some advice. I don't know if it's good advice. (laughs) This is what what I would say. And I'm accepting government funders from this advice because I think they're a slightly different beast. Um, Funding is about relationships. So first and foremost, build relationships with your funders. Um, go Go to their meetings, go to their AGMs, ask for meetings to come to them, do what you can. To build those relationships, because once you have that relationship, you can start talking to them. Find allies, find other funders in your community or people that work for funders that might be asking these similar questions, and see if there's either a way in to deepen those relationships or if they're asking similar things to you. Is there a way that they can perhaps not advocate for you, but bring some of these issues up? And especially from a Community Foundation standpoint, I think I, I'm really fascinated by donors. Um, community foundations and and private family foundations, I think hold a really large potential to make some serious change in the way that funding structures work in Canada because we are only beholden to our donors. so, As a grantee, if you have some relationships with donors, or if you are an organization that's thinking about creating an endowment, for example, I think that there are ways in there that you can start asking some of these questions. And I would say, to what does your funder uh, respond? Are they data people? Find some data and share this with them. Are they interested in storytelling? Share some stories with them. Are they a corporate funder and they're really interested in um, their CSR or their brand in the community? See if there are ways that you can leverage their activation um, to try and advance the goals that you have. But ultimately, I think it's about building those relationships and send in the diplomats if you're a warrior. (laughs) Uh, and send in the warrior when you need a warrior um so
0: different kinds of roles different people will have different strengths mm
2: -hmm.
0: you know like like all change making there's um there's a journey that's involved here but i love that you remind people about the key the key ingredient of genuine relationships you know if you have that like with anything else, if, you're, if you develop a friendship, you can talk about tougher things than if you just are passing each other in a hallway.
2: Absolutely, and it may feel unsatisfying because it probably won't lead to immediate change. And it may feel like you are trying to become friends with your enemy. Um, but genuine change-making requires those sorts of relationships. Not you personally, but your cause or your organization.
0: Yeah. So, you know, as I said to you at the beginning, this this term funder fragility and all that it means, I mean, it's, there's certainly nothing that's brand new in there for anybody that has um, worked for some time and, you know, kind of benefit from the good graces, but also at the mercy of funders. Um, But if this conversation is starting, and if this is starting to come up, is there for you some bright spots in the field that say, I don't think this is going to just get swept under the rug. I think that we're at a time where it could be dealt with.
2: The most obvious example in my horizon right now is the Community Foundations of Canada Conference. It happens every other year. It's happening in June this year. I did a quick look at their schedule today, and 15 of the plenary sessions are about equity, or about diversity or about addressing complex funding challenges as relates to privilege and power, which is huge. And that was not the case two years ago or four years ago or six years ago, let alone the keynote speaker there is Edgar Villanova, who wrote Decolonizing Wealth. It's an absolutely incredible book that's asking questions about where does wealth come from? The answer in Canada and the United States is not a pretty one. And so how can we use money to heal? And as talking to funders specifically, so maybe another piece of advice is, if you're trying to talk to funders, mail them this book and have them read it. But the fact that he's able to come as a keynote speaker is incredible. And I am seeing a lot of energy and a lot of intention around this conversation. I'm worried that it turns into a branding exercise that we can pant ourselves on the back and then move on. And I know that change happens in cycles. And so the window that's open right now isn't always going to be open. But my God, while it's open, let's push as hard as we can so that when it closes and eventually reopens again, we are that much further along.
0: I, too, have felt the frustration, the fear, and frankly, the disappointment that comes with witnessing funder Fragility playing out on the phone, in a meeting room, or out in a community. Like Ashley though, I'm also noticing those shifts, cracks, opportunities for addressing this real challenge that is usually surrounded with silence. But maybe all of us, funders and social innovators, donors, board members, and those whom we all hope to serve maybe we're ready to break that silence to be noisier about funder fragility thank you to ashley dryberg for sharing her experiences thoughts and hopes thanks also to jacob and carla who talked with me about funder fragility at the workshop i'm grateful to the talented technician esther gadd for her amazing post-production support and to molly siegel who is our podcast coach and mentor the Getting to Maybe social innovation residency at Banff Centre and all the people who've been involved in it are the inspiration for this podcast series. Ashley Dryberg and Jacob Zimmer are both past participants in the program. I want to acknowledge that Banff is located on Treaty Seven territory, the traditional lands of the Blackfoot, Stony Nakoda and Tsutina First Nations. Please join me next time for another story about the complexities of working for social innovation. Another story about getting closer to maybe.